Thank you so much, Wellspring, for the privilege. Uh, thank you for sending us to Burundi, where we get to represent Jesus Christ to a people that needs love and the gospel and excellent clinical care and clinical instruction. We count it a real privilege. Thank you for like making the time possible for your pastors and elders to come visit us. We really enjoyed having Pastor Sam and Fuji and then uh, Elder Thomas come see us in February. And then we got to spend some time with Sarah Shin over the summer. What a blessing. You guys, I think you should know that these people are the same in Burundi as they are here. Like servant-hearted, they love to care for others. They were like always washing our dishes, which we really appreciated because, you know, they made some dishes. But um, that's them. That's who they are. And it truly is my privilege to greet you from the, to bring you greetings from the church in Burundi. So I'll greet you. Ubunhu namahoro wimana ziri muri mwebge. The grace and peace of God be with you. Um, and you know that I'll carry your greetings back to them there. They are very insistent every time we come back. Did you tell them hello from our church? And I can say, yes, we certainly did. Um, there's this wonderful love, as you know, between believers all over the world that you guys, um, your brothers and sisters in Burundi, think of you as brothers and sisters here in California. So it's a sweet, sweet fellowship. Today, I have the privilege of bringing you uh, a little bit of uh, God's word. And this is coming from my own like quiet time devotions as I've been reflecting on things in the last couple months. Uh, so we're going to be in Philippians. So if you have your Bibles or your phones or tablets, whatever, we're going to be in Philippians chapter one, the last four verses. So 27 through 30. I'll give you a moment to, to find it there. Philippians, I, I chose Philippians as a focus of my devotions because it's such an encouraging book. You know, the Philippian church had problems, but Paul wasn't having to like reprimand them like he did the Galatians or the Corinthians. You know, it's uh, it's full of encouragement. He who began a good work in you will be faithful to complete it. You know, these these things that we anchor, the promises of God. But there's this this passage in particular, Philippians 1, 27 through 30, is, um, it's really a charge to us as a church for what does it mean to live as gospel citizens in a world of fear. So let me read this for you, and we can all follow together. I'll be from the ESV. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you, that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation, and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. This is our, our theme for today, living as gospel citizens in a world of fear. Um, you guys probably know, because your pastors are so awesome and they give you these wonderful history lessons, that the city of Philippi had kind of a special status in the Roman world. It was called a Roman colony, if you were born in Philippi, you were born a Roman citizen, which was not usual for these outlying towns. It's in Macedonia, so it's in Greece, um, not in Italy. And it was founded by Philip II of Macedon, who is Alexander the Great's dad, so kind of an important figure in that history. There were gold mines nearby, so it was a kind of a wealthy city. And in the, the battle after the assassination of Julius Caesar, you guys remember Brutus and Cassius kind of conspired to kill Julius? Julius's 
successors chase them down and they hold up in Philippi. And so the battle of Philippi was where they, they met their doom. It's where sort of like law and order in the Roman empire caught those traitors and found justice. And so a lot of military um, soldiers and generals retired to Philippi because it was a nice place. And so it was a really prominent town and they were really proud of their citizenship having been born in Philippi. So the theme of citizenship is actually woven all throughout Philippians. But I bring your attention to that concept because that first word, that first imperative, let your manner of life be worthy. That is the, there's a Greek verb for live like a citizen, like conduct yourself like a good citizen. And so the, the citizenship idea is like wrapped up right in the very beginning. Now, I don't know about you guys, but citizenship is kind of a complicated, I have a relationship with citizenship that is a little bit complicated, right? Like I live in Burundi where people look at an American and they're like, oh, you're so rich, can you give me some money? So it's like automatically being an American citizen carries with it some things, right? I don't know if you guys have had a chance to travel, but nobody wants to be the American tourist who's like loud and obnoxious and like never dressed appropriately for the situation. But there's also like good sides, right? Like citizenship has some benefits, right? Like if we get in trouble in Burundi, they'll send a helicopter to try to get us out of Kibuye and get us out of the country when things, like in 2015, things got a little hot. We didn't have to evacuate, thankfully, but our government is looking out for us. Uh, I remember one time when I was, when we were in undergrad, I got a chance to do study abroad in Israel in September of 2001. And for those of you who remember that time, something happened on the 11th of September, 2001, that was a little bit scary for those of us who call America home. You know, there was some, there was a terrorist attack and some planes were flown into the Twin Towers. Yeah, I was in Israel and that was a weird time to be an American citizen because we didn't know who did it right away. Um, there were some Israeli communities that were holding up signs in solidarity, like we understand what it's like to live with terrorism. And there were some, not all, but there were some Palestinian communities who were celebrating in the streets that the great Satan had been attacked and, and injured. So that was the first time where I realized that my citizenship was actually a reason that people would hate me or console me just on the basis of my citizenship. So in like manner, if you're here today and you're a Christian, God has called you into his kingdom. You're a citizen of the gospel. You're a gospel citizen. That means that we have certain defining characteristics, certain traits that should set us apart as citizens of God's kingdom, gospel citizens as opposed to the citizens of this world. And so we're gonna look at a few of those. Um, there's traits that identify people as citizens of different countries. We talked about the American tourist, but what are those things that define us? Fortunately, this text has the answer for us. And the first thing is integrity. And this is written to a church, right? So this is not just about our personal integrity, but it's our integrity as a whole group. He says, what is that first thing he says? Whether I come to you and see you or am absent. Like it, it, it shouldn't matter whether the pastor is here or not, how we live our lives. I think for us that that can be a challenge because it's easy to live a little bit differently around your Christian community than around your non-Christian community. For me, at least it is when I think about, should I post that on social media about a person's a person, no matter how small, you know, that's Dr. Seuss. Theodore Geisel, he was actually like, he's like the patron saint of UC San Diego, for those of you who know the UCs. Um, but that's hate speech in some people's worldviews. 
you know, because it's a pro-life statement and it make, make people feel bad about their different choices. And so I have a voluntary faculty appointment at the University of Southern California. Like, will I get fired or reprimanded if I do that? Like, I think twice about these things. Um, do we live differently based on who we're around? It's part of this integrity thing. But it's not just integrity of like your witness because the, the, the following thing says, I wanna hear about you, whether I'm in person or not, that you're standing firm. That's a, that's a military term. It means like the line is unbroken. Soldiers going to battle that are all lined up shoulder to shoulder so that the enemy can't advance. I wanna hear that you're standing firm in one spirit with one mind striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. What is our integrity in pursuit of? It's in pursuit of unity. I think I lost my slides. Jacob, Caleb, I need help. There it is. Integrity, it's in pursuit of unity. One spirit, one mind. So you guys read spirit in the Bible and you're thinking like Holy Spirit, right? We have one spirit because the Holy Spirit resides in every believer and he's given us gifts to exercise in the church for the mutual edification. I think that could be true, but given that it's followed immediately with one mind, I think Paul's aiming at something different. I think what he's trying to say is we have one, we have the same like motivation and heart, and then we have the same sort of like strategy or tactics. So that's the one spirit and one mind. We're not that we're groupthink and that we all think the same thing. So like whatever Pastor Sam says we do, if he's like jump off a cliff, we're like, yes, Pastor Sam. And we do it unwittingly. No, I don't think that's what he's talking about. He's talking about one spirit. We have the same goal. Our heart beats for the same thing. And one mind means that when faced with similar challenges, we come to similar conclusions because we're drawing our source from a similar place. We're all saturated with the word so that when those trials come, when those questions of wisdom come up, we can all respond in a similar fashion and we'll be unified in our approach because we're having all these same inputs. And then striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. I really love this word in, in Greek. It's synathlos, like from, from where we get athlete or athletics. And sim is like symbiosis, the together. So we're like competing together, not against each other. We're competing on the same team for the same goal. Like what is a better example of, of working together towards something than a team? I know that like Lila Chiang plays volleyball. There's, I, I see some people that I think have got to play basketball given how tall you are. Like a group of people working towards the same objective with the similar tactics and strategy. Like what is that except for a team? And so that's the word he uses. He gives us the soldiers, the, uh, uh, an army fighting the same battle and a team fighting in the same competition. And then he says, and gets us to our next point, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. I think that is uh, really interesting. That word for frightened can be terrified or intimidated or, um, yeah, I mean, the fact that it can be terrified, it's, it's a fear thing, right? Like, and he's keeping it with opponents not frightened in anything. What does the world do to frighten us? Like, first of all, who are our opponents, I guess? I kind of gave it away, right? It's, it's the world. It's the non-Christian world. That could be coworkers who don't like you because you're a Christian. 
that could be the invisible mob on in social media or the blogosphere or wherever you interact socially. That could be your neighbors. That could be anybody, right? The opponents of the gospel is anybody who's not yet a member of the kingdom. Now, we have friends who are mild-mannered and gentle. But if they're not submitted to Christ, they're on the other team. I think that's a little bit hard for, hard for me because I have a lot of friends who don't yet know Christ. And they're my friends. I like hanging out with them. But they're not yet on our team. They're not yet citizens of our same kingdom. And there are people who are more opposed, right? Who are more active. I think I fear, I, I can fear, like I was talking about making that posting on, on Twitter X or on social media. I remember a time I was uh, at the University of Southern California in the LA County Hospital in the emergency room. There was like a mid forties Latina woman came in with vague abdominal pain symptoms. And after taking the history and doing the exam, it doesn't really fit pancreatitis or cholecystitis or any, anything stereotypical. But we did exam, you know, you gotta do your diligence and you wanna make sure that you don't miss something. So when all her results came back and it was normal negative results, I went back in and I shared with her, you know, your blood work is all normal. The CT scan showed nothing that we can, that we need to worry about right now. But I can see that you're suffering. Tell me, how are things going in your family? How are things at home? How's your husband? Oh, he's been out of work for six months and we don't know where we're gonna find work because our immigration status was dependent on work and then we lost that. Oh, that's really heavy. How about your kids? Yeah, my oldest son, he quit going to school and now he, all he's doing is hanging out with his friends and I think they might be into drugs. I'm not sure. That's really heavy. These are hard things that weigh on a, on a wife and a mother's heart, right? So I said, can I pray with you? She said, yes, please. So we prayed together. She cried. We prayed and she felt a lot better afterwards. I tried to connect her to resources. And as I left the room, you know, it has the, the ER room had like a window which was open. It's always open when I'm in there. Um, as I walked out, the nurse was like, were you just praying with that patient? And I was like, yes, I was. And in my heart, I was like, I don't know what's going to happen now because she is clearly not cool with the fact that I was praying with the patient. So I was like, I just prayed to my mind. I'm like, Lord, you got me into this. You're going to have to protect me. I'm going to go fill out the discharge paperwork. But if I have to go, like, you know, it's, it's not too bad. Like, it's probably going before a nursing board and, like, explaining what was going on and getting reprimanded. But you lose, like, two days of your life and you're really scared and you have this mark on your record, whatever. It's like, okay, I don't know what's going to happen, but Lord, please protect me. And then a trauma came in, so we were all busy with the trauma. But an hour later, that same nurse, Jen De La Cruz, she came up to me and she's like, you know what? I bet that really helped her. She seemed like... She seemed better. That's neat that you can do that. I was like, wow, that is a total reverse from where I thought this was going. Um, so I thought she was an opponent, and maybe she is, I don't know. But, but I was frightened in my heart as to what was going to happen in that situation. And that's like a tiny, that's just the tiniest thing, right? It's easy for us to be frightened. We can lose reputation, or we can lose respect, or we could even maybe lose our jobs or lose our appointments, our faculty appointments, lose our access to resources. Um, John Stone Street is a commentator that I listen to sometimes, and he says, we need a theology of losing our job for Christ. 
because the world is hardening down. I don't know if you guys, if it feels like this to you, I'm, you know, I'm living in Burundi watching what's happening and we only get some access to news about America, but it seems like, and not just America, but you know, our, our missionary friends to India, it's getting harder for them to get their visas. A lot of North Africa and Muslim majority countries are no longer accepting the, like the cover of a business um, visa. If you're not actually making a lot of money, obviously China has closed down hard on non-government sponsored or government permitted churches. The world is the world is hardening down and I think America is getting harder too. It looks like it to me. You guys know better. But it seems to me that opposition to the gospel is rising in American culture. Whereas a generation ago there were some values held in common that maybe made it feel like it was a safer environment. Whereas now it's it it just feels it feels different to me. 10 years later, it feels like you guys are actually in the harder place to be a Christian than I am, at least, because Burundians are open. There's no barriers to these things. So we, we need what we're called to, what characterizes gospel citizens is an audacity. I like that word audacity. They use it a lot more in French than in English. It means like willing to take a risk. And if I'm going to camp out here for a little bit because it really leads into the next part. The difference between knowing something and believing something is risk. What will you risk in that case? I know that God is good and God is sovereign, but I still have a hard time risking for him. I still, I know that God controls everything, but I still struggle sometimes to take that step of faith to risk my reputation for him in America or to risk some of my finances. Like we don't, we're missionaries. Like I don't make a regular doctor salary. And so checking to make sure that we have enough to put into retirement savings so that when it's all over, we can live somewhere I think even like we don't own a, whole, a house and I think that really stresses us out. It feels like we're taking a risk by not having a place that's ours that like we could live in if everything went to pot. That difference between knowing and believing has to do with what you're willing to risk and what you're not willing to risk for the gospel, for the sake of Christ, that's the thing you believe in, whether or not we want to say it that way. And so I think I'm convicted when I come to this passage about being fearless in front of our adversaries or our opponents because of what we know to be true and what we believe to be true. But what's really cool is that, you know, it goes on. We're not frightened in anything by our opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. And so I really want, I want to to spend a little bit of time giving you the context for Philippians. It's really hard to understand the book of Philippians if you don't remember Acts chapter 16. So I think Pastor Sam told me that you guys recently might have even done like a drama of the life of Paul. So you might have in your minds a vision or a, a memory of seeing this acted out. Paul and Silas, they pick up Timothy and they go to Philippi. 
which is in Macedonia. It's a big town. I told you that already. And they go down to the river where they suppose there's a place of prayer. They meet a woman named Lydia. She's a seller of purple garments. She gets saved. Her whole household comes to, to faith. They get baptized, and she becomes like Paul and Silas's host. She's like, you guys got to stay with me. And so they're staying with them sometime. And there's a girl there who has, the ESV says, a spirit of divination. So it's like a demon that somehow could predict the future. I don't know if it was like fortune teller, tarot card reader. I don't know what it was. But this, this girl, this slave girl, is following them around. And she's like, these people are, represent the most high God. And they're announcing to you the way of salvation, right? Like, it's really great publicity, PR, to have someone like announcing you as you come along as the, the bearer of the gospel. Um, but it's a demon doing that. So that's confusing. Paul's response is also confusing because he's so annoyed after several days that he's like, in the name of Jesus Christ, come out of her. So he casts the demon out, and now her owners are angry. Because, like, we were actually making a lot of money with her fortune-telling, and now we can't do that anymore because she's healed of this demon. So they would rather have the money in the demoniac than to have someone delivered. There's something about greed there. But, you know, Paul casts out the demon because he's so annoyed that he's testifying that their message is true. He doesn't want the testimony of a demon. He wants to give... God's testimony himself. So they whip up a mob and they take Paul and Silas, they strip them, they beat them, and they throw them in jail. And not just regular jail, they throw them in like the central jail, like the, the middle of the jail. And then they put their feet in um, stocks. So they're in like jail, jail, jail. They're in the worst jail. You guys remember this? And then at midnight, Paul and Silas are like praying and singing and all the prisoners are listening to them and then an earthquake strikes. And this is like a super targeted earthquake because it just knocks open all the doors of the jail and pulls the fetters off of their feet. The, pr the prison guard wakes up. You guys remember this? And he like gets his sword because it's like, if I don't kill myself, they're going to take my whole family down because it's my job to protect all these prisoners. And he goes to like throw himself on a sword and Paul and Silas like, whoa, 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 stop. We're all still here. You don't need to die because of the earthquake. And that Philippian jailer is so convicted. He's like, okay, tell me this gospel thing because this is crazy news. You know something I don't know and you believe something I don't believe. And so he gets saved. They all get back. He like takes them. He bandages their wounds. His whole household gets baptized that same night. So that was a very late night for Paul and Silas. Then they go back to the jail and they're hanging out there. And the magistrates send news. They're like, you know what? This is getting really complicated. We've had a little earthquake and overnight to think about it. Let those guys go. Do you remember what Paul says? Paul's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I'm a Roman citizen. I've been beaten and I've been thrown in jail without a trial. That is illegal to do to a Roman citizen. Like your special status with the Roman Empire is now at risk because of how you treated me. And now they're going to send us away quietly? No, no, no. Let them come down themselves. And so you remember the magistrates came and it says they were afraid. And they're like, can you just please leave? Like, just shh. Right? And so Paul and Silas go hang out with Lydia, and um, then they move on to other towns in Macedonia. So I want you to see this. A sign of destruction and of salvation was the fearlessness of Paul. And it, it kind of circles around that citizenship idea again, right? Like he had rights and privileges, and he was protected because of his citizenship. This is, he used his Roman citizenship in that case. And he, he made appeal to that several times in his life and career, and it got him into and out of trouble a few times. But look at what happened to those magistrates, right? They went from one day 
They were like beating him and throwing him in prison. And the next day they're scared. When, when the world throws everything it can at us and it doesn't knock us down, they realize that they don't have the power they thought they had. If you guys have studied church history, you know that in the early days, thousands of Christians were martyred and thrown to the lions in the gladiatorial combat. And they would stand there serene, at least some of them, and they would get mauled and ripped apart by lions. But Tertullian said, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. Do you know what happened when people, when thousands of spectators saw that these Christians didn't fear death? That they would go out in the plagues and they would take care of people knowing that they might lose their lives, but doing it anyways? Do you know what happened? The gospel exploded. And people came to Christ because they realized they believe and know something that I don't know. Because they're not afraid of death. They're not afraid of losing things for the gospel. So this is, the, this is the, the beauty of that fearlessness, that audacity. It comes with suffering. God let Paul and Silas get beat up and thrown in jail before he did this big deliverance, right? It's a J curve. He takes us down before he brings us up. You have to die before resurrection is possible. Right? This is what he did for Jesus. The next sentence, these last two verses. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, because they were at Philippi, right? And now here that I still have, because he's in jail when he's writing this letter. It has been granted to you it's a gift. The faith is a gift. I think we all, we all recognize that. That's easy to understand. Not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his sake. The suffering is a gift. And when God gives a gift, the appropriate human response is gratitude. But I'm not always grateful for my suffering. Michelle doesn't complain. I complain. I get frustrated and angry because I don't see it as a gift. Faith is a gift, and faith sanctifies us and makes us more holy. Suffering? Now, there's, there's several types of suffering, right? There's, there's discipline. We suffer when we do wrong because God is chastising us and making us more like Christ. There's persecution, which is suffering for doing right. And that's the world trying to stop you and trying to afflict Christ and his people. You know, Paul says in Colossians, I do in my body, what I, I complete what is lacking in the afflictions of Christ. The afflictions of Christ were sufficient. Jesus said, it is finished. He did it all. But Jesus' body isn't here on earth anymore to be persecuted, except as it is in the church. So we take on the representation of Christ, and we suffer persecuted for what is for what is right. And first first Peter tells us it's better to be persecuted or to be afflicted for doing good rather than doing evil. Right? I think we'd all rather be afflicted for doing good than chastised or disciplined for doing wrong. There's a third category of suffering which is just the brokenness of the world, right? Like we live in a post-fall chaos. So tornadoes and hurricanes and regular earthquakes 
happen and they and we suffer because of them and our friends suffer and we suffer on behalf of people who are faced with cancer or illnesses that they didn't have any role in uh, producing so the the last one you can't avoid the first one we want to avoid but that second category persecution it's part of what god uses to sanctify us just the same way he does with faith he, he gives it to us as a gift. Do you remember what Paul and Silas were doing in prison? They were praying and singing. They were overjoyed to be considered worthy to suffer shame for the name. Do you remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5 about those who are persecuted and slandered and all kinds of evil spoken against you for my sake in the gospel? What did he call us? It's like at the end of the Beatitudes. We're blessed. It's a blessing. What this is, I think this is the, what strikes me about this is that it means that God starts this thing in grace. And what he begins in grace, he always finishes in glory. And so the suffering is, is like a part of the pathway towards the glory that he's prepared for us. The suffering, it, it makes us more like Christ, right? It sanctifies us. And how did Christ's suffering impact? Like what, how important was Christ's suffering for what God was doing in the world? I would say pretty central. The, the death of Christ, the crucifixion of Christ, kind of important in our religion, right? In Christianity, there's really, without that, there's no salvation. Without that, there's no forgiveness of sins. Without that, there's no reconciliation to God and eternity in heaven. So God put the glory on the other side of the suffering. So when we suffer for Christ, we get to participate with him and imitate him. But I want to say one more thing about that is, is not, I don't think it's enough to say that we imitate and we participate with Christ when we suffer for his sake. I think we get his presence in a special way. I think they were singing and praying as an outflow of that proximity they felt with Christ. I've experienced this myself sometimes, but the, probably the best example are, do you remember these three Hebrew children, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, sometimes called Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? They wouldn't bow to the king, so he threw them into a fiery furnace. And then he was like, whoa, didn't we throw three guys in there? Who's that fourth one? He has the appearance of a son of God. I think that was a, a pre-incarnate Christophany. I think that was Jesus hanging out with them in the furnace. Some people think it was an angel. Could have been. The, the text does not tell us. But I think it was Jesus. I think it was the Lord with them, his presence with them in the fire. And I, I'm, I'm confident enough to tell you from up here that when the path of obedience brings you into suffering, Jesus will be with you in a special way in that place. So in order to, to close this out, I have some questions for us to think about as we, as we reflect on this passage and as we go into our week. Starting with integrity. What in my life changes when I'm around other believers versus when I'm alone or with a bunch of non-believers? Do my entertainment choices, movies, books, social media, do they reflect my gospel citizenship? Or am I pretending to be something else? Am I acting like 
I'm a citizen of another world. When we talk about that unity, how has my commitment to unity wavered this past week or month? Would an outside observer look at my life in community and conclude that my church and I, that we're of one mind and one spirit? Or am I content to do my own thing and to not engage and not participate? Does audacity or fearlessness characterize my public persona in class or at work while hanging out with my neighbors or waiting to pick up my kids from school? What is one way that I'm intimidating regarding my Christian faith in my day-to-day -day life? And I think, if I can say this, when we talk about these things, something, at least in some of us, is stirring in our minds when we're like, how have I been intimidated in my Christian witness this last week or month? Something comes up in your heart. That thing, I encourage you to pray about it. Bring it to the Lord and bring it to your community because I can almost guarantee you're not the only one who has that thing or can understand that thing. And you can hold each other, I would say hold each other accountable, but you can also just encourage each other. We'll be, for, we'll be there with you at the other side of this. And then lastly, when we're gonna talk about perseverance through suffering, am I suffering for Christ's sake? Is God calling me to give up some comfort, ease, maybe some influence, some respect, some reputation because of my gospel citizenship? I, I encourage and exhort you, whatever rises in your heart when you look at these questions about what God might be calling you to do that will possibly result in suffering, I just want to encourage you, go for it and watch how closely he follows with you and carries that burden with you and how much it tightens you up with the rest of this community. We've all failed. We're, none of us are perfect. Jesus already did it for us. He gave us the right to be called children of God, to be citizens of the kingdom, to be gospel citizens. He gave us that promise of heaven and he will transform us. He will complete the work he started. We aren't there yet, but he who started a good work will be faithful to complete it and to bring us there in the end. Let me pray for our time. Dear Heavenly Father, Thank you for your promise. Thank you for your goodness. Thank you for the completed work on the cross and that you didn't ever shy away from suffering when it was the path of obedience. Thank you that you pursued us to become members of your family, to become members of your church, to become members of your kingdom when we couldn't do anything for ourselves. Thank you that your body was broken and your blood was shed for people like us who mess it up all the time and yet you consider, you preferentially choose to use us in this world when you could use anyone in anything. Thank you for that great privilege of bearing your gospel, of bearing your marks, of looking a little bit more like Christ. I pray that because of this time and the study of your word that we would all be a little bit more like Jesus going from this place. Bless each one here in San Ramon and in Kibuye and everywhere in between. May your people praise your name, worship you, and draw others to do the same. You're worthy of this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.